Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. Today's episode is all about judicial review, that so-called tool of lefty campaigners to do politics by other means. Um, at least that's what some members of the current government think about it. Are they right? Well, as you might guess, if you've ever listened to this podcast, the answer we're going to come up with is no, um, but we will explain why. Um, I'm joined today by Pragna Patel, who's a founding member and current director of the Southall Black Sisters, and Kamla Adiseshia, who's a senior solicitor at Southwark Law Centre, where she manages the immigration team. This episode was recorded live at the Law Centre Network Annual Conference. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB Law undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to support the podcast and make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. I'm very, very pleased to be invited to do this plenary discussion this morning, and I'm very excited to have two excellent co-speakers um, alongside me. First of all, I'll introduce myself. My name's Adam Wagner. I'm, I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and public law at Doughty Street Chambers. Um, beside me or on my screen below me, but they could be anywhere on your screen, um, I have Pragna Patel, who's a founding member of the Southall Black Sisters um, and Women Against Fundamentalism. Um, she worked as a coordinator and a senior caseworker for Southall Black Sisters from 1982 to 1993, when she left to train and practice as a solicitor. And in 2009, she returned as the director of Southern Black Sisters. Kamla, or Cam, I've been told to call her, is a solicitor and is accredited by the Law Society as an advanced immigration and asylum caseworker and supervisor. She's worked in legal aid immigration practice since 1999 and is a senior solicitor at Southern Law Centre where she manages the immigration team. She also provides advice for maternity action on charges for NHS maternity care. And she's also a part-time visiting lecturer at Westminster University. And that actually reminds me to say that I'm also a visiting professor at um, Goldsmiths University. And I always get asked by Goldsmiths to mention that. And today we're going to be talking about judicial review and human rights. And, and I think we'll, we'll probably focus a bit more on judicial review. Now, judicial review is the means by which individuals and organisations can challenge decisions of the state. And in recent years, if you read the newspapers or you watch TV or you're on social media, you'll have seen enough, um, uh, maybe too much, talk of judicial review uh, being a tool of left-wing campaigners or a means of doing politics by other means. And what we want to do today in our discussion is try and untangle what's been happening with judicial review um, by, first of all, talking about what judicial review is. Now, um, many of the people listening today will know exactly what judicial review is and will be very experienced in doing judicial review, some less so, some not at all. So we'll start with the basics, the what. Um, and then we're going to talk about the why. Um, why use judicial review as a legal remedy? Um, then the how. Uh, what are the, how practically does judicial review work and what are the practical difficulties in the present day of bringing judicial review and, and actually succeeding in judicial review, which um, as a practitioner, I can, say, I can tell you is one of the hardest things to do, I think, in law is to actually bring a successful judicial review. There's, there's, there's a million obstacles before you can. Um, and then finally, after talking about the what, the why and the how, we're going to talk about the now. What's happening with the current reform agenda by the government? What does it mean? Um, and then what's the impact also of the human rights reforms that are being talked about, but we don't yet know the details of um, on our potential um, legal world? 
So before I open the floor to um, Pragna and Cam, I just want to say this session is also being recorded for the podcast, which I present called The Better Human Podcast. And you'll be able to listen to it as an audio file a bit later. So I'm going to start with the, with the what. Um, and I'll start with, with Cam. What is, um, in a nutshell, if you're explaining it to a child, <laughs> and, or you're explaining to your child, what is judicial review? Uh, judicial review is a, a legal remedy for decisions made by public bodies. So, for example, oh, we are all subject to decisions of public bodies all the time. We might be subject to a welfare benefits decision or a decision by a hospital to charge us for um, NHS maternity care or other services um, or a decision about immigration status. There are, you know, never-ending public law decisions that we faced. Um, and judicial review is a legal challenge to a decision by a public body. And it takes place either in the admin court um, or in the upper tribunal in some immigration and asylum matters. And it's a process whereby a judge or judges look at the decision and decide whether or not the decision itself has been made lawfully. And it's a really important tool because it may be the only legal remedy that somebody has in which to challenge a decision that has a big impact on their life. Or it may be a remedy of last resort where previous remedies are exhausted. Pragna, would you, do you have anything to add to that sort of simple description of judicial review, what it might be used for? Not really. I mean, I think that um, it's a really, really important mechanism. Um, I can't think of very many legal mechanisms that allow us to challenge directly public bodies um, and, the, and the decision making of public bodies. And why it's so important, I feel, is because... Often, you know, um, as Cam said, as, as a mechanism of last resort, it allows us or it allows the person on the street a, a chance to really question whether a decision has been made properly, whether right factors have been taken into account, whether the wrong factors have been taken into account, whether there's been a kind of misinterpretation of law or policy. Um, all of these things impact, they seem technical, but actually in the daily lives of people, certainly the daily lives of the women that I see who have to engage with public bodies all the time, um, it's very easy for public bodies to ride roughshod over people who have no power. And so for me, the judicial review mechanism is critical in trying to balance, restore a sense of power to people who have to challenge, you know, public bodies that are bureaucratic, that are less than transparent often, that have concentration of power, and where there is sometimes, you know, conduct that amounts to illegality. And so for the ordinary person on the street, it is really important to be able to challenge public bodies and judicial reviews as are I think probably one of the best mechanisms by which to do so. And Cam, th that idea of judicial review as empowerment. Um, let, let's let's move on. We've done. I think we've done the the what. Let's move on to the why. Um, d would you agree that judicial review is a form of empowerment um, where there may be no other empowerment available? And can you give a couple of examples of the kinds of cases that you will be dealing with? Um, on a daily basis, where that might be the case? Mm. Well, in terms of empowerment, um, it is a legal remedy whereby an individual is challenging a large faceless body, um, you know, the government um, and the off there's masses and masses of officers who work for the government. So in terms of um, examples, if we take the issue of charges for NHS services. So there are regulations whereby NHS trusts charge people who are called overseas visitors for um, NHS care. And those people who are overseas visitors are people who are not ordinarily resident in the UK. So most of them 
are not British citizens. Some of them are British citizens who don't, who are not residents. And the charges for overseas visitors who are not British are at 150% of the actual NHS tariff. And I mean, I'm sure most people realise that the actual cost of operations, maternity care, runs into the hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, and there are also a set of regulations that include exemptions. And the government, when they designed these regulations, did so saying that these regulate the exemptions in the regulations are to protect vulnerable groups. So, for example, an asylum seeker from the date that they claim asylum is exempt from charging, and somebody who's granted refugee status is exempt for charging. And there's a very interesting regulation which says that if somebody is granted refugee status, the exemption that they have can be backdated to the day that they were in the United Kingdom in order to, with, with the intention of claiming asylum, even though they had not yet made that claim. Now, there are no appeal systems in within trusts. There's no appeal systems within the Department of Health. So if you get presented with an invoice for hundreds of thousands of pounds, you have no formal mechanism with which to challenge that. Um, all you can do is you can write to the trust and say, oh, I think you shouldn't be charging me because I, I'm a refugee or whatever it is. The, 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 and then it's the same person who decided to issue the invoice and then decides whether or not um, you should have an exemption applied to you. Bearing in mind, these overseas visitors officers don't have um, immigration training. And we all know how difficult it is actually to be an immigration lawyer. So this Regulation 6 is designed to protect people from charges who came to the UK to claim asylum but hadn't claimed it yet. We have numerous examples of women who, the moment that they became pregnant, that created a claim for asylum because the fact of being pregnant potentially maybe outside of marriage um, with the wrong person means that they can't return to their country of origin because they would be harmed, maybe killed because of that particular relationship, because of becoming pregnant outside marriage or being with the wrong partner. And so the moment she discovers she's pregnant, she has an asylum claim. However, for various reasons, she may not actually register or claim asylum until later. And so there could be a period of months during which she's having maternity care um, paying out, you know, and could be charged thousands of pounds for that. Um, now, the, the trusts, they have no mechanism to say to that woman, oh, let us know, by the way, if you ever get refugee status, because, you know, we might be able to give you a backdated exemption. They, they're not interested, and they, they, a lot of them don't even seem to know about these things. So we've been conducting judicial reviews for women who have been granted refugee status, and, who, and where the trusts will not backdate the exemption. And it's, it's crucial because these women, there's no way a woman who has found herself in this position then gets refugee status, can start paying out thousands of pounds um, for NHS maternity care. And she's entitled to that backdate. She's entitled to that exemption. But the trusts take the position of, you know, that we're gatekeepers. They, they're not, they, they don't see themselves as there to help somebody. They don't see themselves as, oh, well, these regulations are protect, to protect vulnerable people. So let's try to find a way to apply this exemption to this woman. They just try to block um, and they always say no. But as soon as we issue proceedings, they realize we're serious and they back down. And I don't know whether that's because they're just, not sure they, they, they don't under, they realize that they've misunderstood or because they also don't want us to make it through to get permission and to actually have a judicial review hearing where a judge says there is an inter you know we need an interpretation of this backdating regulation which we would get if we were actually given permission for JR but we we you know always win just by issuing the proceedings or sometimes in the pre-action stage and and, and I guess the people listening might think that's uh, almost like a paradigmatic example of a public authority making a life-changing decision 
say, to charge someone £100,000 um, for, for them to have a debt of £100,000. Um, where there's no right of appeal, there's no due process within the authority, and therefore you're left with that la- remedy of last resort of judicial review. Um, but Pragma, do you want to talk about an example or examples of, of the kinds of situations where your organisation uses judicial review? Yes, um, a large part of our work focuses on issues of women, black and minority women facing gender-based violence, domestic abuse, sexual violence, and other more culturally specific forms of harm, such as honour killings, forced marriage, and related problems with homelessness, racism, immigration problems, and so on. Um, We really rely on judicial reviews to ensure that vulnerable women obtain the state support that they need. Um, And like Cam has said, judicial reviews are really vital to our daily work, our daily engagement with authorities such as social services or the police, uh, because these public bodies fail to support women, fail to meet their legal obligations um, in domestic law, under human rights law, to support vulnerable women. And to give you an example, Uh, We do a lot of work supporting um, referring women, vulnerable migrant women with children, uh, but who also have insecure immigration status and are subject to a condition called no recourse to public funds, which prohibits them from accessing the welfare safety net. Um, These women, when they arrive at our doors, they're destitute um, and they fled abuse. Now, where there are children involved, we would try to refer them to social services for support. Um, The the women are utterly desperate and without uh, without our support, without social services support, they're more likely to return to abusive relationships. Um, And so when we do refer them to social services, we usually ask for assessments and for support under Section 17 of the Children Act. And Section 17 sets out a general duty on every local authority to safeguard and promote the welfare of children within their area who are in need. However, in reality, when we refer women, we encounter considerable barriers um, and often hostility from local authorities. And our casework has highlighted you know, several problems that emerge in women's encounters with social services. So, for example, women um, met with outright refusal to assist women and children. Uh, There's failure to provide reasons for that refusal often. Um, Often social workers provide unlawfully immigration advice when they're not accredited to do so. Um, because they're not um, accredited by the OISC. Um, They attempt to mediate with abusive partners. They threaten to accommodate children only and not the mother. Um, They fail to take proper account of the children's needs. They fail to follow proper procedures. They uh, suggest that they will buy tickets for women to return for women and children to return to their countries of origin, irrespective of the risks that that might involve for those uh, women and children in those countries. They force women to return to originating boroughs uh, where they may still be at risk, and they make inappropriate and judgmental comments and harass women pursuing options um, that can actually place women and children in greater danger. So, these these responses clearly conflict with their duties under the Children Act and actually also conflict with human rights, um, you know, with, with the rights enshrined in the ECHR um, and with race and gender equality principles. Um, so these decisions not only violate women's human rights, but also subject them to secondary trauma and victimization. And it's against this kind of background of blatantly unlawful practices um, that occur on a daily basis that compel us to write to local authorities, warning them that legal action will be taken if they don't discharge their duties and they don't carry out risk assessments, they don't carry out human rights assessments. And, And just to give you an example, 
Um, in a three-month period from July to September in 2019, we were tracking the amount of times we were compelled to instruct legal community care lawyers, and it was 18 times in a period of three months um, to write to local authorities, threatening judicial review proceedings for refusing to provide assistance or adequate assistance to homeless and destitute women and children. Um, so in the face of these judicial review threats, much in the same way that Cam has described, uh, they withdraw their decisions and they focus and concentrate their minds on the task at hand, which is to carry out proper risk assessments and provide the support that vulnerable women and children need. And, and because of this um, action on our part, we have noticed actually that there's been a slight improvement in the response of social services in our area. Um, so legal letters that we used to threaten them with in 2019 have dropped slightly to around two a month now. Um, although in most cases, we still have to copy in the director of social services in order to get the response that we need. Um, those are kind of daily examples. And what they show is that the very act of writing those letters, threatening judicial reviews is enough, is enough to force public bodies like local authorities to really focus and to, you know, interpret the law or the policies that they have properly and to conduct themselves in a decent and uh, appropriate manner in accordance with the law. So that those are that's kind of on a daily level. But more, more broadly, judicial reviews have been important for us where we've wanted to raise issues of wider public importance as well. Um, and one of the most famous examples of that in our history was when we took our local council to court for withdrawing funds for our services um, in 2007 and 2008. And the, the local authority had decided to withdraw our funding on the basis that specialist services like ours were no longer needed um, and said that actually um, services like ours caused division and segregation in society and that we were living in a post-racial society um, and that there was really no need for specialist services like ours. Um, despite countless you know, meetings and negotiations and so on, the council just wouldn't budge. So we were forced to bring judicial review proceedings and, and the grounds included, um, you know, not having regard to the Race Relations Act, not carrying out a proper race, uh, um, race impact equality assessment. Um, and once the proceedings had started, the council decided to carry out an equality impact assessment and then used it to justify its decision to withdraw its funding of our services. And uh, we went all the way to the High Court because the judge, uh, the, uh, the council just wouldn't budge. But during the two-day hearing, the Ealing Council realised that it was on very shaky grounds and eventually for, was forced to withdraw its decision to withdraw our funding. Um, and, and the, um, but we, as an organisation, insisted that the court give a judgment, even though Ealing Council withdrew its decision, because we were very concerned that, you know, with the problem with judicial review is even if a decision is quashed, they could make the same decision again. And so we were very concerned about having something in writing that set out how, how they've acted unlawfully and how they should proceed with decisions around funding for specialist services. And it was Lord Justice Moses who presided over that particular hearing. And he made um, a, he gave a judgment which was absolutely brilliant, which reinterpreted, which re reiterated the need for local councils to promote and advance equality, including racial equality, um, and to carry out a proper equality impact assessment and to use it at the formative stage of decision-making rather than retrospectively to justify decisions. So what became, you know, what began as a local campaigning issue actually turned out to be a significant struggle for the very meaning of equality itself. And the case uh, was then used by local authorities up and down the country 
um, to learn lessons from, to look at how to make decisions in relation to funding local organizations and assessing need in their areas. And it was also used by specialist organizations, whether they're working with disabled people, elderly people, BME, you know, pensioners, um, or, or BME women. Um, the case was used to um, to give them some, uh, sort of, uh, you know, to give them some guidance on how to challenge unlawful decisions uh, from their own local authorities in relation to cutting of specialist services, largely due to austerity measures. So those are just some of the ways in which we have benefited from the existence of this really important tool of accountability. It's really interesting that you bring, you raise sort of two different, almost two different categories of case. Um, and I, I sometimes think of this as, as judicial review as a bit like a, an iceberg, where a huge amount of judicial review happens under the water that you don't, it doesn't even get to a court. It happens privately. It's involved private citizens. It may raise issues of public importance, but there's but not there's no publicity around the case um and and that kind of work you know happens i imagine at every law center that does judicial review at every solicitor's firm that does judicial review and every um barrister that does judicial review has lots of cases at any one time where you threaten judicial review because you've come to the end of a road and, and you have to as a last resort um threaten this very you know complex and potentially costly remedy but in the most part that will if you've got a good case and and usually a, a good lawyer won't threaten anything unless you know you've got some sort of leg to stand on then you would generally hope the public authority <clears throat> will take advice from its own lawyers and and they will say yes there's a good case um we should settle this we should figure out a way of compromising it and that is you know essentially that part that's under the water and we'll talk about the bit that's over the water but that part that's under the water is is you know an under the water um sort of good governance exercise and, and cam do you find that that's your experience in I, I mean i don't i don't know about um what exactly how your caseload looks but in in a lot of your cases you find that public authorities are not you know um adversary overly adversarial necessarily that they might be willing to compromise well, um, <laughs> or, or at least sometimes. Yes. I, I, well, the the compromise comes only after the issue of proceedings. Well, right. that's not true. Actually, it can offer, it can come during the pre-action period. So I think what happens is that, for example, in the Home Office, so the vast majority of my cases are asylum and immigration cases, yeah. and the Home Office is a very large government department. Um, with layers and layers and layers of officials making decisions and um, uh, I think a high, turner, high turnover of staff so sometimes um, staff might be making high impact decisions that but those staff perhaps don't have a lot of experience and training because there's such a huge turnover in the home office um, and so they will make really poorly reasoned decisions um, and because the Home Office is backlogged and um, struggling to keep up with its uh, caseload, they then fail to rectify those decisions during the pre-action process. Um, but as soon as you actually issue the proceedings, somebody steps in, whether it's a government legal department lawyer or um, a more senior Home Office person and says, yeah, the decision was wrong, we need to we need to back down. Um, so I don't think it's so much compromise as, you know, realisation that they've, they've behaved maybe incompetently and can't sustain their decisions. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, compromise, I mean, I very rarely see uh, any kind of willingness to compromise as such from, from the Home Office. If they can give a negative decision, then they certainly will. Um, so, yeah, we get the sort of pulling out at pre-action stage, sometimes more pulling out at the, uh, after the issue of proceedings. Um, 
in other departments, I mean, I, I don't do judicial review with it, um, in the housing or any of those other departments. I do do the NHS charging. Again, they don't want to compromise. The overseas visitors' officers see themselves as gatekeepers. And if they can possibly say no, then they will. And it is only when they've got legal advice that they finally realise that they can't push on anymore. Um, so I think that, that sort of thinking about pregnant, talking about sort of more strategic litigation, judicial review, you know, moving on from the compromising and the settling of individual cases, judicial review is really important in terms of, of forcing organisations to have proper procedures that make decision-making fairer and more competent, that they interpret regulations properly in accordance with the law. Um, but I don't think we've got to the stage with the Home Office um, or anywhere near with the Home Office or, tr or, or with trusts that they actually see themselves as, you know, needing to um, make fair decisions and to be open to compromise and, and, and sort of take a a generous position towards the individuals who are affected by their decisions. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I suppose uh, it, it was a mistake to ask about the Home Office and compromise in the same, que in the same question. Um, I mean, look, the, my, my experience with the Home Office and, and a long time ago, um, I, I, when I was a, a, acted on the government panels, I would act for the Home Office and, and, and now I act exclusively against the Home Office. And my experience universally is it, it's a vet, you know, it, it's a unique government department in a way because it's so it's such a political um, department. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is that the that when they're making decisions which are effectively decisions on the law, there is often an element of sort of political pressure um, being exercised. Um, and you know, and 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 even when, as a lawyer, you are you are you would be advising um, to go one way, you would find, well, you know, the ministers decided that's we're going to take this one to court. You know, and, and not even though you're advising, you're going to lose. And I think that's the that is just the um, that is the way that department works. And and ultimately, the um, it might be good make make good newspaper copy. Um, for the Home Secretary, but the the individual on the ground who happened to be caught up in an issue which has become politicised and 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 you know are going to be the the, the victims because they're going to end up with unlawful decision making. Um, and 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 I guess there the judicial review, as you say, you need to go to court um, because the because the likelihood of compromise is is, is less and less, and particularly if your client is someone who. The, the public might, you know, the, who the minister might think, well, I, I don't want to be in the newspaper having been lenient to this, this person. Um, let, let's talk about above the, above the water, the above the water cases. So those cases that you do read about in the newspapers and which do lead to these charges by the ministers um, and by the government, uh, certainly of this government, of campaigning lawyers using law um, to do politics by other means. Now, obviously, some cases of great public importance are going to have a political element. Um, but do you think, pregnant, does that mean that they're sort of somehow inherently illegitimate as, as, a, as a focus for the law? Maybe we talk about some of the cases that you've, that you've done um, recently that have come into the public eye. Um, no, not at all. I, I think that the point about these cases is that they would be below the radar if it wasn't for the fact that you know we need to kind of use those cases and there are only some cases you know but they raise issues of such wider public importance that they need to be highlighted and publicized and and don't forget they wouldn't come into the public 
arena at all, but for unlawful decision making. So the first point that I would make is that it's because this institutions are failing us that we have had to, you know, contemplate uh, judicial reviews. And in some cases, that means that uh, raising the wider um, underlying um, trends that might be really, really important to highlight um, and to learn lessons from. Um, and, and so my example of, you know, how we approach the decision by Ealing Council to withdraw our funding was one such case. It, we didn't, when we started, have any idea of the ramifications it had. But actually, a lot of specialist organisations are also feeling the same level of uh, pressure on them and the cuts that they were threatened with in their local areas meant that they were following this case. And actually, even some lawyers in other areas had kind of stayed their particular legal challenge against the local authority waiting for the outcome of this particular case. So some cases just have that wider significance and ramifications. And I think that's rightly the case because ultimately this isn't just about legal remedies. This isn't just about saying to government, you know, that illegality should not be tolerated. This is also about fostering a culture of equality and human rights. You know, this is about raising awareness. This is about um, a much broader issue of how do you, um, you know, embed equality values, democratic values, you know, uh, human rights values into the very fabric and in, of our institutions and our, our cultural and, um, you know, institutional relations. Um, and then I can think of a few other cases where we've managed to raise issues that otherwise would not be raised. And I'm thinking particularly, for example, in 2013, the UK universities, which is a governing body of universities, decided that gender segregation in camp on, on university campuses in public spaces was okay because certain speakers that were invited or certain societies in that university would, uh, you know, felt that for religious reasons they should organize events where women and men and women were segregated. You know, literally events where there was a curtain uh, put up in the middle of a room uh, or women were sent to the back of a room or two separate entrances for men and women. And we actually initiated or we supported a student uh, to initiate judicial review proceedings against Universities UK, um, arguing that the guidance that it had issued, saying that it was OK to have gender segregation at public meetings, um, we argued that that guidance breach was in breach of equality, uh, domestic and international human rights law and equality legislation, particularly sex equality, you know, and the right to education for women, the right for women to have freedom of expression, the right for women to participate in public life. These were all the kinds of human rights that were implicated. And uh, we issued the pre-action protocol letter and as a result of that letter, where you know the lawyer set out in more detail all the various breaches in law, uh, the universities UK conceded and realised that the guidance that it had produced around segregation in public spaces was illegal, unlawful, discriminatory, and withdrew it. Um, and that not only raised issues around you know gender equality. But it actually helped us as an organization to talk more publicly about the impact of uh, growing fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism and ultra conservatism in our communities and the way in which that those that development was encroaching on law and policy. Another example I can give is when we challenged the Law Society in 2014 um, for issuing guidance to its members stating that if, you know, to lawyers stating that if you want to draw up Sharia compliant wills, please remember that women and children born outside of marriage don't qualify. 
Um, uh, and and again, you know, and, and uh, divorced women don't qualify. Um, and so again, we threatened judicial review. And again, the Law Society withdrew its discriminatory guidance, realizing that actually what it was doing was endorsing religious discrimination against women. Um, and here, you know, again, we were highlighting how easy it is for public bodies to, to act without thinking and to act without, you know, any kind of consideration as to what are the not just what are the the, the the what is the right thing to do, but what are the political forces at play that might force them into positions that they ought not to um, have or adopt? And so, here are examples of how uh, judicial reviews have wider public awareness and, and an educative function. That's not political. That. You know, none of this, I would say, is political. It is about good governments. It is about uh, holding public bodies to account. It is about fostering equality values and human rights values. It is about progressing democratic values, you know, and it is about ensuring that people are treated as citizens first and foremost. I think this is really, really critical and why for us, Judicial review is an important mechanism by which to, you know, uh, it's an important mechanism for democracy, actually. Yeah. And, and, and look, the people talk about the rule of law a lot. And in fact, it seems to have replaced everything else as a kind of uh, as something that people from the right and people from the left can talk about the rule of law, um, you know, without it being stained by politics. Um, but what, what does the rule of law mean? It means... That there is um, that all, all everybody is subject to the law, whether they are the lawmakers, public authorities, or individuals. How do individuals make sure that public, that policymakers and lawmakers keep to the law? Judicial review—that's the only mechanism that they really have. Um, you know, subject to other democratic checks. checks. Now, now the, the current, current government, government is, is trying to reform judicial review. Um, and before I open up to questions, which I will do in a minute, Cam, I, I wanted to ask you, that there's, two, there's two main changes which the government uh, are proposing in the judicial review and courts bill. The first one is that there will be a change to um, remedies. So if there's a, a quashing order, which is something which quashes particular, a particular regulation, for example, it can have it might only have um, prospective effects. So it would only matter going forward. And, and the other one is that they're going to get rid of so what are called CART judicial reviews. Now, I know that CART judicial reviews is something that you deal with um, quite often. Can you just explain what that means? Because the um, because you, it'd be, it's impossible to know from the name. It just happens to have been the name of case, uh, which makes it extra confusing if you're trying to explain it to people. Yeah, CART is, is the case name. Um, CART-JR is a really important access to justice mechanism. So um, it's if we think about immigration, somebody could have, let's say, an asylum refusal from the Home Office, and then they have a right of appeal to the tribunal, and it's a specialist fact-finding tribunal, the Immigration and Asylum Chamber. So first of all, they go to the first tier tribunal, and that is their first decision. Um, and let's say that their appeal is dismissed in the first tier tribunal. And uh, the lawyer, a lawyer looks at the decision of the first tier tribunal and can see that there are errors of law and that they are material. So in other words, those errors of law, had they not been made, could have led to the appeal being allowed. So that then the lawyer can apply for permission to appeal um, first of all, to the first tier tribunal, they, they would grant permission to go to the upper tribunal and then they apply for permission to the upper tribunal to go to the upper tribunal. So CART-JR comes in if the person is refused permission to appeal at the last stage. So the upper tribunal refuses permission to appeal to the upper tribunal. Um, that's it. They're finished. Um, there are no further you know, permission applications that can be made. Um, but the lawyer is looking at this decision and still thinking there are errors of law here. These decisions are legally incorrect. And CART-JR enables a challenge to the refusal of permission. So 
it's a, diff, a different kind of JR, um, slightly different procedures apply, but it does mean um, a very important access to justice for people subject to, you know, high stakes decisions. Um, and so we we have conducted CART judicial reviews um, and we have um, and it is quite rare, actually, as you pointed out right at the beginning, Adam, to actually get permission to proceed with the judicial review is really difficult and unusual. Most JRs settle before, you know, pre-permission. So we've taken cart judicial reviews, been granted permission and gone up through the courts. Um, and I had a, a, a case of a, an Iranian, a young Iranian boy who had arrived in the UK aged 17 by the time I took over his appeal case, he was in his 20s. Um, his life was just, you know, passing by. It was, you know, it was just wasting away. He was becoming more and more depressed. It was, a, you know, to me, it was just a terrible waste of a life. Anyway, we can't judicially reviewed in the high court. Um, the high court refused us, so we went up to the court of appeal. And finally, when he was, well, he, I think he was about 26 when the Court of Appeal allowed his appeal. Um, and then because of the way the courts work, we then had to, you know, sort of track back down the courts to finally get the decision that we wanted. Um, so that's, that's a boy, a Kurdish Iranian boy who w was left, you know, destitute with nothing from the age of 17 to 27 until he finally got his refugee status. And had he been returned to Iran, he would have been detained, he would have been tortured, and he probably would have been killed. Um, and so that was a, a major cart judicial review that we ran and that gave us a very important outcome. And to lose that would have left him without status. Um, and we've had other, um, we had a you know, we've had one or two other cart judicial reviews, only one that succeeded. But I think two cart judicial review successes, uh, uh, you know, is an important success rate. And I was aware that the government was one of the reasons that they put forward for taking away cart JR was that there were very few successes. I, I don't know if their figures were correct, but I certainly don't see that just because there have been, uh, you know, a few successful cart JRs. I don't understand why that's the reason to take them away. It's still a remedy that that is needed. And it may be that actually more lawyers need to be using cart JR. And it just it's just a matter of lawyers, you know, understanding how to use it um, and and you know conducting cart judicial reviews more often. Yeah, no, no, the, the figures were definitely wrong. The the the, the Fox review figures were, were proven to be wrong. I think that they they added, added up the wrong column or, or, or something. I think, I think no, I, it wasn't, to, to be fair. I think it's more to do with, they looked at record, reported cases um, of CART successes. And obviously the vast majority of, of, of judicial review in the upper tribunal, sorry, in, in, in the high court is not um, reported. So it will be, you know, and, and, and CART can be successful in other ways. You can be successful. Um, it can be settled, whatever. Um the, I just wanted to ask you one more question, Cam. It's about um, funding. So this is obviously a, a big question about the 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 possibility of judicial review. Um, in the in in most cases, certainly in most cases that that that, that I deal with, funding is is a problem. You might have to crowdfund. You might um, be in the unusual situation of being able to get legal aid. Um, but what what happens when um, you you when the legal aid agency makes a bad decision? Um, how, how you know how can you challenge that? So um, if the legal aid agency makes an unlawful decision and they won't move on it, then there is the possibility of judicial review of the legal aid agency. And just um, I just want to mention the amazing litigation that was carried out by Public Law Project against the Director of, the, of Legal Aid Casework pursuant to regulations that came out after LASPO. So the legal, new legal aid landscape that began on the 1st of April 2013, whereby immigration, the Lord Chancellor's guidance was that immigration will rarely or if ever qualify for legal aid. 
you know, huge sweeping areas of law were taken out of the scope of legal aid. Now, public law project and the fantastic lawyers there um, took a series of challenges in a legal aid project and they won. So they challenged the residence test, the residence test that tried to say that people who were not lawfully resident in the UK, although subject to the laws of the UK, could not have legal aid in which to challenge uh, illegal decisions by public bodies. So that was the first thing, the residence test. Um, they then succeeded, um, along with other uh, organisations, in challenge in the challenging the Lord Chancellor's guidance on the idea that immigration could be somehow just excluded from legal aid, point blank, particularly family reunion, for example, which is an incredibly complex area of law, but had made out without any basis to be very simple and straightforward. So they challenged the residence test, the scope, um, the the so they made it became very clear that exceptional case funding under Section 10 of LASPO can be applied for in any type of work if a person can show the complexity and the human rights angles involved in the casework. And importantly, they also challenged the legal aid agency's attempt to take away payment from lawyers for the work that they do pre-permission if permission is refused. Now, that is a clear disincentive to lawyers. It's saying to lawyers, look, don't bother with judicial review because if you don't succeed, you're not going to get paid. And that's another obstacle to access for justice. Now, the PLP had a partial success in that the legal aid agency conceded insofar as they introduced a discretionary payment so that if we, and of course, most JRs settle pre-permission, if we do settle pre-permission and we can meet certain criteria, then we can claim, you know, the very small legal aid payments that are available. So I think that incorrect decisions by the legal aid agency have been successfully challenged and still can be successfully challenged because there is, again, uh, you know, a, a, such poor decision-making from the legal aid agency in some cases. In other cases, it's very good. So um, it's not quite the, it's not the sort of stern face of the home office in that it, you know, gatekeeps and rejects every single thing that happens. It's, it, you know, it's a bit more mixed, actually. Um, and just one other thing is I think that, you know, eroding judicial review um, will go hand in hand with eroding rights to legal aid. Um, and particularly if, you, if the Human Rights Act is attacked, if it's repealed, if it's amended, because a lot of what is in scope of legal aid is there because there are international obligations under the Human Rights Act and the Refugee Convention. Yeah, and 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 we haven't really touched on the reforms to the Human Rights Act because, um, well, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen yet. We know that there's there's been an independent review by Lord Justice Gross, um, which has they've apparently completed their report and it's with the government. The government are now deciding what to do. Um, it would be good to see that independent report sooner rather than later. Um, I wanted to pick up a few of the really um, good questions that have come through. Um, one from Emily McCarran, who's at the Legal Education Foundation, um, and she says, for research and campaigning purposes, for example, to illustrate why JR is such an important remedy, how do you quantify or collect data or case studies on the under the water, the bulk of the iceberg, Judicial Review and Human Rights Act work? Um, and this is certainly something that I've been trying to... Um, deal with for many years I, I set up an organization called rights info which is now each other but does a lot of this kind of collecting of stories and and successes and 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 sort of translating that into into public facing stories but i mean do, do either of you have any ideas maybe start with pregnant and, and try if you could be brief because we've only got five minutes how that those um those success stories that don't get public attention, maybe for good reason, could be collected in some sort of systematic way while we're going through this um, this process of reform. Uh, bodies like the Law Centres Federation might be in a good position to collect these kinds of stories in a more systemic way. Uh, whether there's funding available for someone to do that is another question. Yeah. Um, I also think that another option might be to, you know, there were many, many submissions and have been many submissions to the 
you know, consultations that took place around judicial review reforms, around um, the Human Rights Act, you know, uh, reforms. I, I, it, it, would, it would be really good to actually trawl through those because I'm sure there are lots of casework examples there that can be brought together and, and, and uh, somehow collated in a way that helps people have a re ready access to them when they need to highlight these stories in the public. Yeah, well, that's, that, those are great ideas. Maybe ones that um, Emily um, might take back to the Legal Education Foundation while we're talking about funding. Um, Cam, any, any, any thoughts on, on collecting those, those stories, even just in snapshot form? Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, the, the kinds of um, lawyers who do, do strategic litiga litigation, like public law projects um, and, and uh, public interest lawyers, law centre, they will, when they're, when they're building a project, they will gather data, they'll put out a call for evidence. Um, and so I think that if it was required, if we needed to know about the number of cases that settle pre-permission, it would be by evidence gathering, you know, a, a team that wants to litigate would would put out a call and would gather the evidence. Um, and, you know, this is one of the huge tasks that's involved by the, you know, these amazing public law public law solicitors who do that kind of work is that evidence gathering um so yeah i, I think that i i'm i'm agree i agree with pragna you know you could either have an organization that is devoted to that um or uh, we just rely on the individual litigators taking strategic cases um another question which i'll ask quickly um is how do other, this is from Fiona Costello, how do other grassroots organisations mobilise this type of support? We're based in Norfolk in a coastal town working with migrant communities and still often come across decisions such as we can support you to go home to country X or we have only a responsibility to your children. Um, recently, recently we've had a mother told, you are a good mother, but we don't want to take, we don't want to take your children into care, but... Um, so how can they, how can Peter, and there was another question as well, how can, um, for example, law centres that don't necessarily do judicial review um, get into this area? Maybe one for Cam. Well, I think, first of all, law centres are law centres. We, we, we do the law primarily. We're not, um, you know, sort of campaigning organisations in that direct way. Um, I know that as a network, obviously, what comes out of our casework is used to advocate for um, change. So I think that law centres, if they want to be involved in challenging decisions, you know, like the one that um, Fiona mentioned, um, then they need to be looking at um, raising funds to, you know, grant support to employ solicitors to take judicial review challenges um, because, you know, that's what law centres are there for, to, to provide lawyers, to provide legal solutions to um, local communities. I, I Just to add to that, I would say that there's two, it's a two-pronged approach. One is, as Cam said, you know, you need a lawyer focusing on this and focusing on the challenger heart. But don't forget that the law on its own cannot do the job. You need campaigning around it. And that, um, in our case, the Ealing Council case, the example I gave, the campaigning aspect to that work, which I didn't even get to talk about, but was so critical also. Um, and so I would say that mobilising support with migrant groups in the area, in Norfolk, I think it is, you know, working with migrant women, uh, migrant people, migrant projects, um, highlighting the particular area that you're uh, judicially reviewing, you know, and getting that wider support going and starting a campaign around that case is equally important, if not more so, because the law on its own, you know, we, you know, we don't always win. We get set back, you know, we get set back. So, to put all our eggs in the legal basket is not enough. I think you've got to do both at the same time. So I would say mobilising with migrant groups in the area, migrants in the area, raising the issue, raising the profile. And that's also a form of empowerment in itself. And it's important that people feel that they are part of this movement rather than, you know, outside of it. Um, although I think we could go on and there are lots of other interesting questions. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw it to a close.
Um, it's been a really interesting and important discussion about judicial review um, and human rights and how they form uh, an essential element of good governance in this country, um, creating, um, as we've we've heard, ideally, um, and maybe even sometimes in practice, a culture of good governance, a culture of human rights, um, and making sure that individuals um, who are disempowered um, against a very large and sometimes quite um, oppressive state can use the mechanisms of judicial review to redress some of those power imbalances. So um, I'm going to say thank you to Kamla um, Adisashia, um, Pragna Patel, um, and for your really interesting input. Thank you for everybody who's asked questions. My name is Adam Wagner, and thank you very much to the Law Centres for organising this, and best of luck with the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye. Pragna. Bye-bye. Thanks, Adam. Bye-bye. So thank you very much to Pragna Patel of the Southern Black Sisters and Kamla Adisashia, who's at the Southwark Law Centre. And thank you to Law Centre's network and their annual conference for allowing us to record this conversation live. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to support this podcast, please leave a positive review and go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com to give a regular donation which will help make the podcast sustainable. Thanks very much. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time.